The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. Changes. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Trinity Long Room Hub online. My name is Eve Patton and I'm the director of the Hub, which is Trinity College Dublin's flagship research institute for the arts and humanities. One of the missions of the Trinity Longroom Hub is to bring the best of our academic research to public view and to show you how the work we do in the Hub and in arts and humanities at Trinity relates to a real world agenda. And this certainly applies in the case of tonight's discussion event on white nationalism, a subject that has returned noisily to our frame of vision recently in many places across the world, and which demands, as I think you will all agree, our urgent critical attention. So I'm very pleased that we have such a large audience joining us this evening on Zoom and on our Facebook live stream. You can tweet, uh, as always, at TLR Hub using the, the hashtag HubMatters. And you'll also be able to put your questions for the panelists this evening into the Q&A, which is going to appear at the bottom of your screens, or if you're on Facebook, in the comments section. And we look forward to taking those questions later on this evening. I'm very pleased indeed that the Hub is hosting the online launch of this important new book, uh, Global White Nationalism, From Apartheid to Trump, Racism, Resistance, and Social Change. It's published by Manchester University Press and edited by Camilla Schofield, Jennifer Sutton, and Daniel Geary. And Dan, of course, is known to Hub audiences as our very distinguished Mark Piggott, Associate Professor in American History here in Trinity. And he's also a formidable commentator on the current transatlantic political and cultural climate. So I now want to hand you over to Dan, who's going to join with his fellow contributors to tell you more about global white nationalism. Dan. Uh, thank you, Eve, and thank you all for being here this evening. Now, it's customary at a book launch of this kind for everyone to raise a glass of wine. Um, that's not only not possible today for us to offer you a glass of wine, but it's also not fitting, I think, given the topic, because while we're certainly all proud of the work that we've done on this book, um, I think we all would, would rather that this topic were not of such contemporary relevance today. I mean, the ascendance of white nationalism globally might make you want to have a drink, but uh, not in a celebratory way. Um, so I think it's more appropriate really to mark the occasion in this way with, uh, with a panel discussion. Uh, it is also customary at Book Launch, however, to thank those without whom the book would be impossible. And I want to thank uh, three sets of people uh, very briefly. Firstly, the Longru Hub itself, which hosted the workshop in 2017 uh, that was called together out of which this book uh, emerged. Uh, without the physical infrastructure, the funding of the Hub, as well as providing this uh, virtual space uh, today, work of this kind simply would be impossible. And uh, they do a great job at the Hub, and, and thanks very much to them. Uh, secondly, to the, our press, Manchester University Press, and our fantastic editor, Tom Dark, who's with us uh, this evening. Uh, the press has also offered us uh, uh, attendees tonight a 50% discount, generous 50% discount on the book if you wish to purchase it. 
the details will be there in your uh, chat. Um, and then, of course, the contributors to the book. Uh, collaborative work of this kind certainly has its challenges, but it also has significant rewards. And a book of uh, this kind, you know, that didn't really, I, we felt didn't exist and needed to exist, could only have been done, um, you know, in this time span by bringing together the expertise of scholars of, of different uh, kinds, and, and, you know, all of them were, were essential. Now, you'll notice, of course, tonight that uh, all of our panelists are white. Nearly all the contributors to the book are, are white. We have uh, just one scholar of color. We wish that we had more. I mean, in some sense, you're, as an editor of a book, you're subject to the vagaries of who's able to contribute in what period of time. But obviously, the work of scholars of color is crucial to understanding white supremacy in the present and in the past. Uh, but we do think, uh, you know, this is something that anti-racist whites, this is, a, you know, one kind of work I think that we could do as uh, allies in the struggle against racism. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce the, the speakers uh, tonight. Uh, first, you'll hear briefly from my two co-editors. Uh, and I think uh, this project used all of uh, the energy, special talents and skills and expertise of all three of us without any of us, this book could, could possibly, could you know, it just wouldn't have come off at all. Uh, first, we're going to hear from Jenny Sutton, who uh, independent scholar with a PhD in history from Washington University in St. Louis. Then Camilla Schofield, uh, who teaches at the University of East Anglia. Uh, then you'll hear from three of the authors uh, of chapters in the book. First from Bill Schwartz at Queen Mary uh, London, then at Zoe Hyman, University College London, and then finally Kyle Burke at Hartwick uh, College. Uh, so if you'll just give me a second here, I'm going to turn over uh, to Jenny. Good evening. Thank you, Daniel. So 2016 seemed like a rough year in 2016. In June, there was the Brexit referendum. And five months later, there was the US election. It seems like an awful coincidence to many people that this worldview of white nationalism had come into the highest levels of political power in the UK and US at seemingly the same time. And I found this very upsetting because I knew that there was a history to this process that had not been discussed and um, had largely not been written of international organizing among white supremacists in the UK and the US over the last 50 years in reaction to the civil rights movements and decolonization, particularly that of the British Empire. In 2010, Daniel and I had collaborated on an article that studied the newsletter of the Citizens Council, which Zoe's written about more extensively, but the Citizens Councils were sort of the country club KKK in the 1950s, a sort of respectable version of white supremacy in the United States, if, if that can be respectable. Um, but it was certainly a, um, an open version with newsletters. And we were fascinated by their fascination with events in Africa in particular from the mid 1950s right through to the 1980s. And then later in the, um, toward the end, their love affair with Enoch Powell and then Margaret Thatcher. And so we looked closely at that um, movement then. And then when this selfie hit, bear with me, the press, four days after the election, 
I thought, you know, right, we've got to do something here. We had almost recovered from the shock of the election. Here, can I just have that back, Sorry. <laughs> um, right, so anyway, the selfie hit, the Brexit part of the bromance, hatred is certainly a part of this story here, which I think um, Camilla's gonna talk about more in a minute. That was only four days after the election. We had barely recovered from the reality of the next, you know, oncoming four years. And I said, okay, right, we have to do something here. It is really important for us to have a useful history of how white nationalism came to power in 2016 as part of an internationally connected, if asynchronous, loose populist movement. My hope for this project was to stimulate research and debate of this history. And here we are 47 months later. And the Hub Workshop in 2017 was a wonderful event. It was really exciting to see a lot of scholarship being developed for this project or in relation to this project. And I remember there was debate over the terminology we would use at the time, whether or not white nationalism was the right and best term we could be using. And also whether or not this project would be relevant a year after, after the midterm elections, after possibly a turnover of the referendum in the UK, let alone three years later. And so while I regret very much um, that it is important now as it was the day that Faraj visited Trump in New York City. Um, I'm very grateful for all the work everyone here has done to help put forward this history. So thank you very much to all the contributors here and to everybody who participated in the workshop. And now I'll be turning over to Camilla. Thanks, Camilla. <clears throat> thanks, Jenny, and, and thanks, Dan, and thanks to everyone um, in the hub for organizing this event and um, hosting the original workshop. So um, I was tasked with just speaking um, broadly about the main findings of the book and, and really I see sort of two main um, points uh, or two main kind of uh, things that we've, we found in the, in, through the sort of collaborative effort that I, I wanted to focus on um, quickly. Um, one, is, as Jenny has outlined, we, this, this, this sort of birth of this was coming out of 2016 and thinking about the coincidence of uh, Brexit and the election of, of Trump. Um, and we, we wanted to not just think about the historical coincidence of this, but also think about how both Trump, Farage and Steve Bannon saw this as a kind of, a, their, their campaigns as connected. Um, so we were interested, I mean, Farage talked about a global revolution rolling across, across the West, uh, Trump voters and Leave voters being part of the same revolution. So we're interested in thinking about um, trying to understand this global perspective of white nationalism. Um, and as Jenny kind of outlined, we were particularly interested in, in bringing scholars together from different, uh, with different specialisms to try to understand um, the history of kind of global connections and networks around connecting white nationalists. And the, one of the main findings we found, so this is our first finding, is that this is not a new phenomenon. It's not dependent on the internet. Um, as Kyle would talk about, um, there were magazines that kind of connected American and, and British uh, white nationalists in the 70s and 80s. Um, so one key finding um, was that we saw the movement of ideas, people and, and funding um, connecting 
white supremacist campaigns across national borders, connecting the US, the UK, and in some instances, Australia. Um, for instance, uh, connected to my work, we found the anti-immigrant populist uh, politician Enoch Powell traveling to the American South, giving talks to white segregationists in Mississippi and Louisiana funded by uh, segregationist groups. Uh, we also found uh, David Duke, Arch Klansman, traveling to London to meet with the BNP. So we're sort of proving that these international connections are not new, and that's sort of one main finding. Um, and by looking at these international connections and what, what people invested in these connections, we got a better sense of their racial view of the world. So the second point that I wanted to emphasize, um, and I, we do kind of recognize that Trump and other white supremacist kind of uh, political groupings draw from a long tradition of white supremacy. We found, we argue, a very modern form of white nationalist, nationalism emerging, particularly out, coming out of the 1960s, out of decolonization and civil rights. And even the term white nationalism, as Jenny said, that was sort of debated whether we should use it. That term emerged in 1970 to draw by white supremacist groups. They started using that term to draw a false equivalency with black nationalism in 1970. So it has a very specific history, and that's something we wanted to talk about. So we found a kind of modern form of white nationalism that is really steeped in a, lang in a panic, a language of loss, status, and decline, reacting to racial equality, sort of civil, the civil rights movement, black liberation. And this is a politics obsessed with kind of imagined existential threat of global demographic change and equal citizenship. Um, so white nationalism increasingly adopted a rhetoric of ethnic populism, we argue, that sort of argue, that presents itself as fighting for forgotten whites betrayed by new globalist liberal elites. This sounds very familiar today. Um, and it was also a language very much steeped in, in a kind of idea of white victimization. And again, we see this at work today, and that's what we think is sort of particularly pertinent for this, for why this book should be read broadly. Um, and those are sort of those are my two main things that I wanted to emphasize. Um, so I don't have time to go into many of the incredible contributions of this volume. I think it's, it's really brilliant because it's, there's so many different perspectives. Um, but, and I hope we, get, we talk about the other contributions in our discussion, but I'm really pleased that we have three incredible contributors speaking today, whose research is, I think, really key to understanding the deep historical roots of contemporary white nationalism, the Proud Boys, and even Donald Trump. Um, so firstly, um, we're going to turn to Bill Schwartz, whose work on whiteness, I will say, whiteness, English nationalism and memories of empire has really transformed the field of modern British history. And we're really honoured to have him here speaking with us today. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Bill, to speak about your chapter. Thank you, Camilla. Um, thank you, sisters, brothers, and the non-binary equivalents, whatever that would be. It's very good to have you here and to have a chance to reflect on the world we're living in. <clears throat> I'm, uh, what I'm interested in today is a question of what they call wild power. And just think of Trump or Johnson or Bolsonaro, the wildness of these figures, which <clears throat> seems to me to represent something new. 
So I want to see if I can begin to locate the wildness of our current political lives, which we're living. <clears throat> and in order to do this, I'm going to offer a forced march through 50 years of history or 70 years of history or 80 years of history and make some very, very general comments about um, civil rights and black power in North America and the larger processes of decolonization. And I think you'll be, um, I think you'll be aware that what I'm doing is kind of conflating the specificities and the differences of black power and um, decolonization. Uh, and I'm, that's partly because I've got a lot of material to go through, but we can come back to that in questions if you like. In the old days, a generation ago, the story of decolonization and also the story of civil rights and black power in the United States, um, those stories were, story, were related as stories full of human promise. That there was a sense that better lives around the corner and the struggle was for some kind of harmony which would break racial injustice. <clears throat> well, within a very short while, those, that optimism has been supplanted by a deepening pessimism about the historical process and about the very possibilities of decolonization or racial equality. Um, and so we have David Scott, for example, a formidable Jamaican scholar, suggesting that decolonization itself is a form of tragedy. You know, if one argued that before the uh, decolonization and um, black liberation represent a kind of um, romance where everything was going to, um, where race was going to assume a new harmony, recently the, the story has been told in a much darker way. Now, I completely follow this. It is absolutely the case that you look at the post-colonial nations and largely the states within, a, within half a political generation were turning the guns on their own people. So it's not that I'm arguing against the idea that there haven't been terrible things happening uh, in the post-colonial world. Of course there are. But I think what this story misses is how these liberation movements, these race liberation movements, were lived. And what they had in their sights, which we, I think it, we're kind of forgetting, what they had in their sights was the destruction of 400 years of colonialism. And I'm not certain that anyone actually ever believed that colonialism is going to be destroyed you know, in the blink of an eye. I don't think that happened. But there was that expectation that the, the racial world was going to be turned upside down. Um, and that the white man's world, both in the metropoles and in the colonies, was actually going to be taken apart and that racial injustice destroyed. So this was a major, I think this was a major historical moment. Whatever the outcome, the fact that this could be imagined and mobilized. So if you look at someone like, um, well, if you not someone like, if you look at King, at Martin Luther King, uh, when he was in jail in Birmingham in uh, April 1963, 
he was thinking and writing in terms of that uh, that he was participating in the third American Revolution. The first being the break from um, um, Britain, the second one, the Civil War, and then the third, um, Civil Rights. And that language was revolution, uh, that language of revolution subsumed all the political record, uh, rhetoric of the race rebels. Or if you look at a figure like Nkrumah, uh, and the great Pan-Africanists, we're all thinking in these terms. <clears throat> and I think what's, what we've kind of forgotten when we've looked at the, you know, the depredations of the post-colonial world, we forget that what drove the optimism, the human optimism, which drove these politics. <clears throat> and if you just um, think of later periods of, you know, of Watts in August 1965, of uh, Detroit and Newark in the summer of 67, um, across the United States, the, the upsurge of, um, of uh, resistance when after Martin Luther King was killed and then Attica in September 1971. All of these, these weren't simply local events. Everyone involved, or many people involved in these uprisings, assumed they were part of a much larger global um, uh, insurgency against a common white dominion. And this, the, I think the key moment when it looked as if this structure feeling could have been crossing the line and entering the field of state power was in 1964 when Lyndon Johnson introduces the Civil Rights Act and as he does so he finishes you know Lyndon Johnson the old segregationist the racist Lyndon Johnson the horrible Lyndon Johnson what he says at the end is we shall overcome <clears throat> um, now, that's one side of the story. The other side of the story is the white reaction was that, you know, the highly strung white reaction of people who self-identified as white was that their lives as sovereign, hum as sovereign human beings was under threat. So just as the, the um, the black radicals experienced their own politics as um, inaugurating a new world. The flip side of that was the white saying that this was a new world which was going to um, destroy them. And there's a great book which came out in 1967 by Regis Debray, student of Louis Althusser, then went and fought with Che Guevara in Bolivia. He wrote a book called Revolution in the Revolution. And what he argued was that the revolution revolutionizes the counter-revolution. The revolution revolutionizes the counter-revolution. And I think what we see from 1967 through to the present moment is actually something akin to a counter-revolution. And whereas in the, in the early days, <clears throat> Um, uh, in the early days of the post-colonial moment and black power, <clears throat> um, 
there was, uh, um, hold on, I've lost my track. I've just got things saying that I've done eight minutes and I said I'd speak for eight minutes. Um, let me just see if I can um, pull this together more quickly. I think what we're looking at is the formation from the 60s through to the present of a highly strong white sense of collective defeat. And if we turn, um, what we see in, in um, today in Trump and in various other white nationalists, <clears throat> we see what Gramsci talked about, Antonio Gramsci talked about in terms of the need for concrete fantasies. Concrete fantasies, he said, this is Gramsci, act on a dispersed and shattered people in order to create a collective consciousness. What we're witnessing and what we've witnessed in the whole of post-colonial period is whiteness organized as um, a concrete fantasy. Now, what's really interesting about this, and this can be traced in the career of, particularly of George Wallace, what's really interesting about this is how a movement, which is fundamentally, you can't call it political, but highly strung, pathological, crazed, absolutely fearful of what's happened to the world, how that slowly becomes a politics. And I think that one way of tracing the, the after history of decolonization, the after history of um, black power and civil rights is how the original kind of pathological, personal, subjective, anxieties and fears of, um, of racial blackness within the white psyche has gradually, in complicated ways, been turned into a politics. And I think what we're living at the moment is a late installment of the reaction to black power and civil rights from the early, earlier generation. I've got one more thing to say and then I shall, I shall close. Um, there is this, if this is right, or if this is nearly right, or partly right, this leaves us with a paradox. Because what I'm suggesting is we can see an arc of development by, whereby um, subjective, neurotic, pathological, compulsive um, reactions to black liberation gradually turn into a politics. And I think something like that does happen. Where the paradox lies is what we also see in the figure of Trump or in the United Kingdom, United Kingdom Boris Johnson. We see that their politics in Hannah Arendt's term is also a form of anti-politics. So even though it becomes politics, it is a completely weird, broken, new kind of politics. It is exactly a politics of reaction and it doesn't look like the old politics that we are stuck with this new politics this new racial politics which i would want to call something like a politics of wild power and that's what we're confronted with historically um i've run out of time so i shall now pass on to zoe zoe are you there yeah i am thanks bill um and thank you to everybody for joining us. I'm going to just give a very kind of brief flavour of my chapter 
um, in this collection this evening by just drawing out a couple of examples that lead on from what particularly Camilla and Bill were talking about. Um, so my chapter here looks at the links between American, British and Southern African white supremacists after the civil rights movement. And I really look specifically at how US segregationists remained and reformulated after their battle to preserve um, legal white supremacy was lost, uh, how they found new ways to claim relevance and legitimacy in a post-civil rights era, and how they managed to connect with like-minded people and organizations in Britain, South Africa, uh, and what was then Rhodesia to help create a transatlantic network of white nationalism um, that's really still prevalent today. So I take a really infamous event as my starting point, um, the massacre of African-Americans in a Charleston church by Dylan Roof in June 2015. Police discovered quickly that he had a website called The Last Rhodesian and he liked to embellish his clothes with flags uh, of apartheid era South Africa and Rhodesia. So why did a 21 year old with no personal memory of or connection to the apartheid era decide to draw on that kind of racist iconography? And how did somebody who, as he said, uh, was not raised in a racist household, uh, become radicalized to the point of committing a massacre that he hoped would start a race war? Well, White supremacist states in Southern Africa have always held a special place in US racist discourse and nostalgia. They originally served as potential role models and later as cautionary tales. Uh, and in this way, of course, Dylan Roof as the self-styled last Rhodesian is really intimately connected to a long history of transnational white supremacy. And though not the only factor, as uh, Camilla mentioned earlier, the internet did play a role uh, in radicalizing Dylan Roof. He discovered a racist, anti-Semitic and xenophobic organization called the Council of Conservative Citizens, where he read articles about, I quote, black on white crime and quote, successfully managing the coming race war. Now, this wasn't a new group. It was the reincarnation of the Citizens Council, um, which was the best known and largest segregationist organization uh, of the civil rights era. So another obvious question might be why this organization still existed and how it managed to attract new members 50 years after the end of legal discrimination. Well, segregationist and white supremacist organizations were never inward looking and parochial. They were outward looking movements that really wanted mainstream political legitimacy and they actively looked for and found allies overseas. For the council movement, this included courting and recruiting Southern politicians and aligning themselves with efforts to preserve uh, or establish white power in Southern Africa and Britain. So one of the things that uh, I really wanted 
do and what I try to do in this chapter is exemplify the diversity of the groups and individuals that came into the council's orbit. This group collaborated with right-wing newspaper editors in apartheid South Africa. Its leaders visited and really worked to financially support Ian Smith's Rhodesia. But when South Africa uh, and Southern Africa uh, no longer represented the hopes of American racist, they focused instead on efforts in Britain to mainstream white power, most notably by the National Front and then the British National Party. And I'll just kind of give you one uh, example that I use in this chapter. In 1999, an ex-National Front member, failed Conservative Party candidate uh, and BNP member called Mark Cottrell set up a satellite organisation in Virginia called the American Friends of the British National Party. Cottrell managed to raise uh, around $100,000 that was channelled back to the BNP. And he really represents the overlapping nature of membership in racist groups. After moving to Virginia, he very quickly became a member of the Council of Conservative Citizens, uh, and he established youth chapters to bring new blood into what was a kind of aging white male organization. But perhaps most remarkably, uh, through the American Friends of the BNP and through the meetings that Cotterill held, he managed to bring together white supremacists from such disparate groups as the Council, uh, David Duke's Klan, neo-Nazi groups like National Alliance and neo-Confederate groups like the League of the South. And he did this really by playing on the fact that as a Brit in America, he promoted racial nationalism. Racial nationalism, uh, of course, was his preferred uh, term. And his recruitment efforts for the council, his fundraising efforts for the BMP, and his kind of remarkable ability to weave between innumerable organizations in the US and connect them across the Atlantic really exemplifies just one strand of this kind of lasting international alliance of white supremacy um, that we look at in this book. Cotterill also really managed to appeal to American racists' desire for mainstream respectability uh, in the new millennium. He insisted on deck shoes, chinos and a polo shirt rather than combat, paramilitary or Nazi-style gear that would enable easily the media to disparage them. And this impact of, of, of Cotterill um, was clearly seen, I think, in the 2017 Unite the Right, Unite the right rally, um, where, yes, there were some in paramilitary garb and it was easy enough to see swastikas and Confederate flags but there were many, many more people who were wearing Cotterill's kind of inconspicuous uniform. And this no doubt made it easier for Donald Trump to tell the press that there were, quote, very fine people on both sides. So like the rest of the extreme right, Cotterill was really 
uh, helped aided by the rise of the internet, uh, which enables racist rhetoric to reach so many more people, uh, Dylan Roof being just one example. But ultimately, uh, Cotterill's internet presence documented his unlawful fundraising, and he was expelled from the US in 2002. So it would be satisfying if we could conclude that white supremacists are fundamentally stupid and will orchestrate their own downfall. Um, but we know that this isn't so. So scholarship like this that renders more visible white nationalism, particularly, uh, I think, the links between its historical and contemporary manifestations can help to rectify, I think, common misconceptions that racists look like racists and they're easily identified because they wear the outdated garb of the Klan or that racists sound like racists by using overtly racist or really obviously coded language and that they're, they're unintelligent and only believe in white supremacy because they're uneducated. Instead, this sort of book more broadly and organisations like the Council and supporters like Mark Cotterill reveal that the racist right has been highly adaptive uh, and capable of maintaining relevance long after the death of Jim Crow, long after the end of apartheid. So the council actually modernized very quickly uh, after Dylan Roof bought it some unexpected publicity. And it claimed that Donald Trump's 2016 campaign revitalized its organization further. And they said, and I quote, right now the white race is facing extinction. At least at the moment, we think we have Donald Trump to do battle for us. He has awakened long suppressed residual instincts in us. So these residual instincts that Trump catalyzed were kept alive by white supremacists who I think it's important to note have been bolstered and not broken um, by the defeat of Jim Crow by the end of apartheid. And the council now believe that the US is a European country and that Americans are part of the European people. Uh, and really just to conclude, I think this promotion of white supremacist unity across borders is the culmination of constant post-1965 racist organising. So at the kind of present time when white supremacy, xenophobia uh, and anti-Semitism is re-entering the mainstream, sometimes repackaged as less threatening or non-threatening identitarian or alt-right politics, this chapter in his book's examination of, uh, of racists' long-term engagement um, is important in order that we can revisit the roots and the transnational reach of white supremacy uh, so that we can better illuminate the evolution and the present state of global white nationalism. And I will now happily hand over to Kyle. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, many thanks as well to the Trinity Laundroom Hub for sponsoring the talk. Um, today and also the conference that produced our book. So I wrote my chapter because I, like all of you, have been dismayed and appalled by the series of white nationalist terrorist attacks that have ricocheted 
across the globe in the past decade, from London to Norway, to Charlottesville, to Pittsburgh, to New Zealand, and many other places besides. Uh, and for me, as I witnessed this, it was impossible to ignore the transnational dimensions of these assaults. Uh, for over and over again, we've seen white nationalist leaders, activists, and self-proclaimed vigilantes and revolutionaries invoking similar ideas, offering similar solutions, and carrying out similar acts of violence. And the big question is why? Why is this happening? Why is it new? Well, most contemporary commentators, they think that these developments signal a kind of fundamental break with older patterns of right-wing politics in the US and in Europe. Uh, in their eyes, they appear to be unprecedented. The violent far right in this framing has long been parochial and reactionary, mostly focused on their own states and societies. And, and only recently, the prevailing view holds have white nationalists sought common cause with one another across national borders. And for most contemporary commentators, as Camilla mentioned earlier, they tend to attribute this collaboration to the internet and explain it as a rise or a reaction, I should say, to neoliberalism, globalization, and, and migration. And I think that's an important explanation, but I think it's a shallow one, perhaps, too, and it's, it's nearsighted. Because uh, I think the recent rise of white nationalist violence and the ocean-spanning links between its proponents are neither new nor unprecedented, but rather, uh, and also they're not reactions to globalization. Uh, instead, I think they are best understood as products of globalization, stemming from decades of, of transnational collaboration. And what I'd like to do here briefly is lay out what I think are the most important dimensions of that collaboration and offer some brief explanations about how and why it grew and changed in the closing decades of the 20th century and, and how and why it propels the kind of violence that we see today. So first, let me talk about the modes of organizing that have linked white power activists in the United States, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Southern Africa, and elsewhere. I think a key shift happened in the 1970s. Before then, white supremacists generally worked across national borders through formal organizations, groups with a clear command structure, leadership, members, dues, officers, and so on. This form of activism had guided the German-American boon in the 1930s, or the Klan's efforts to set up chapters in South Africa and Rhodesia in the 1950s and 1960s. And above all, it guided the World Union of National Socialists, which for a time in the late 1960s was the leading international body for fascists and neo-Nazis. But however, in the, the mid-1970s, after I think really decades of failure and frustration and building an international movement, white nationalists in the United States and Europe began groping towards a new strategy. And they began shifting from formal political organizing to informal networking. And instead of building a single overarching organization like the World Union of National Socialists had been, they labored to share their ideas and resources through overlapping personal, cultural, and financial networks. The result of all of this was a white nationalist movement without a center, a cohesive and yet shifting set of diehards devoted to the same cause. And it was culture, I think, more than formal politics that knitted these networks together. White power activists circulated texts and planned international gatherings. On stage and in print, they denounced immigrants and non-whites as inferior and unassimilable. They ranted about Jewish conspiracies for world domination, and they urged whites, especially young white men, to reclaim their nations through violence. In this world, music was of particular importance. In the late 1970s and the early 1980s, a growing number of neo-Nazi skinhead bands from the United States and Europe joined in spreading these same narratives through their records, shows, and paraphernalia. 
And indeed, their concerts and international tours were often sponsored by groups such as White Aryan Resistance, a California-based neo-Nazi group, or the National Front, Britain's leading far-right party through much of this time. For white nationalist leaders in these organizations, skinhead music was a viable tool. It offered the best way to link their movements across the Atlantic, and it also articulated a besieged white masculinity that could bring young radical men into politics, and through its narratives of martial power, it could also guide these men into violence. And concerts were useful recruiting grounds, but the music itself was more important because it could move across national borders and touch minds in places where far-right leaders would never go, and in some cases could never go due to growing state surveillance and action. Um, others in this time turned to white power literature, which also traveled more easily than people did. Uh, for instance, to take a very notable example, the Turner Diaries, the Bible of the Armed Right, was translated into a half dozen languages in the 1980s, and tens of thousands of copies spread across Europe, Southern Africa, and elsewhere. Free versions of the novel also became widely available on a score of white power websites that exploded in the mid-1990s. And as white nationalists populated chat rooms and message boards, many more purchased white power paraphernalia music, novels, magazines, recorded speeches, t-shirts, posters, and the like. And combined, I think all of this constituted a political and a cultural movement, though few outsiders saw it that way at the time. And so it was through, through books, through culture, magazines, radio, record labels, concerts, rather than formal political groups like the World Union of National Socialists, that these white supremacists tried to make a transnational movement. And within this world, circulating within it, drawing it all together, was a broad affinity for violence. Many within this world urged the paramilitary strategy known as leaderless resistance, which is a fantasy of armed revolution flowing through a loose network of like-minded like individuals and groups. Uh, it borrowed upon techniques pioneered by communist guerrillas or Islamist terror groups and then refracted them into campaigns against domestic enemies. Uh, first, pioneered by Texas Klansman Lewis Beam, leaderless resistance sought to achieve revolution against the state, but without provoking government scrutiny or crackdowns. In other words, it aimed to conceal the movement by hiding members' links to each other in the wider world of white supremacy. And so in the late 1980s and early 1990s, as this strategy or, or reverie of leaderless resistance crisscrossed the Atlantic, it spread through these white power cultural networks. For many leaders, um, Tom Metzger of White Aryan Resistance, William Pierce, author of the Turner Diaries, organizers from Britain's National Front or Combat 18, members of neo-Nazi bands such as Screwdriver or German far-right parties, white power culture itself became a form of leaderless resistance because it flowed across national borders under the radar of state authorities and served to radicalize young men and guide them towards violence. In these years, some skinhead gangs in the United States and Europe did the work of leaderless resistance through sporadic acts of low-level violence, beatings, stabbings, arson, and so on. But others were more ambitious, killing scores of people through escalating acts of spectacular terrorist violence, culminating in assassinations, mass shootings, and bombings. So what conclusions can we draw from all of this? The most important one in my eyes, to return to the point I made before, is that this transnational movement ironically drew strength from the very same historical forces it claimed to counter. White nationalists often said they were fighting globalization, the changes it wrought, or the threats that it posed. Nevertheless, they too harnessed new technologies and transnational flows of culture, ideas, and capital. And therefore, they are best understood in my eyes, not as opponents of globalization as they like to portray themselves, as are they are often portrayed in contemporary journalism, rather I count them as among globalization's beneficiaries.
that's all for me. I'd like to pass it back to um, Daniel. Thank you all. Thank you very much uh, for your wonderful contributions. It's now time for the audience to have a say. Uh, there's a Q&A function and please ask uh, as many questions uh, as you like. We do have uh, some time to, to field your questions and take your comments. Um, I'm going to pose uh, the first question to Bill. This uh, was uh, actually a question that was uh, pre-submitted by Sean Darcy. Uh, the question is, uh, what does taking back your own nation mean and from whom? So we hear this language a lot in the contemporary uh, you know, discourse among white nationalists, we're going to take back our nation. Uh, what, is, what does this mean, Bill? Well, what a very good question. I mean, the answer, of course, is that no one really knows. Um, that it is, it does betoken a kind of phantasmatic world. So when Farage in the United Kingdom talks about Brexit as Independence Day, I mean, it is a kind of lunacy when um, Trump says that the wall, that all that his whole presidency is organized around building the wall. It becomes a sign which steps outside the kind of conventional politics. And it's open enough for people to pour whatever their anxieties and hopes and wishes, they can pour it into the wall or Independence Day, you know? And that's partly what I meant when I said, um, that what, what the new race politics of whiteness represents is a kind of, um, it's a kind of empty vessel. It's a kind of non-politics. So of course, when Trump gets up debating with Biden or Johnson in parliamentary questions has to talk, you know, has to argue with Starmer, they've got nothing to say about policy, about how they're gonna do things at various practice. All they come up with, they address these kind of, what they imagine to be, and possibly correctly, the psychic fears which underlay um, political life, public life, private life as well, in the United States and in Britain. And you know, one of the difficulties, of course, is to try and find some kind of rational response to that, which carries the same cathartic charge as the war or Independence Day. And um, that is the problem we're faced with. Um, can I just say one more thing, please? That the, it seems to me that one of the things which has been underlying everything which has been said so far, but we haven't quite said it, is what is really crucial about this moment um, of course, these white race groups have been active and all over the place for decades and decades and decades. The crucial thing is when they actually begin to cross the threshold of state power and when they become, in part, the state. Um, that's what you can see with Trump and with Johnson, that they become part of the state. So if you, if you know, to watch the Republican Party in the United States or the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom capitulating to a politics which they know they don't like, 
but they also know produces dividends. That is frightening. Thanks very much, Bill. I'm gonna uh, direct one now to, to Kyle. I'm getting a few different versions of this question, but I'll use this one. Uh, it's about Trump. Is Trump truly a white supremacist or merely a cynical opportunist? Yeah, that's a, a, di a difficult question, I suppose. Uh, in part, I think it depends on what we mean by truly, you know, to the extent to which his convictions run deeply within them. I, I certainly think both on his words and actions um, from his candidacy uh, through the present day, or even earlier than that, suggest that his gut level racial or racist instincts place him strongly within the camp uh, of many white supremacists or white nationalists. Whether or not he's fully familiar with the movement and its ideology stretching back into the period that we're talking about here today, um, I think would be doubtful to the extent that he's aware of much. Uh, I think it's doubtful. Uh, to that extent, I think he might be best understood as kind of a late convert to the cause of white nationalism as it's taken some coherence in recent years and as he's surrounded himself with people like Stephen Miller and Steve Bannon who are uh, active voices within that movement and who borrow much of their ideas, rhetoric, um, and their framing of national or international issues through the lens of white nationalism. And I think you can probably see that as well in his, in his style of governance, the, the extent to which he is gratified by the support of white nationalists, and also his kind of discovery that I think there's many more Americans out there who share these political opinions that are offered by uh, what we think of as far-right or fringe groups, but actually um, figure within a large section of the electorate. Trump is also beginning to gravitate towards those opinions to voice them, which then in turn gives them stronger uh, impact or clout within the general sphere. Uh, most obviously you can see this, I think, the other day during the debate last week on Tuesday with his shout out to the Proud Boys. Um, both it indicates his awareness of the Proud Boys and that they fit within this movement that he's describing and also that he sees himself and understands that he's seen it by them as a kind of figure that they look towards, if not a leader, then someone at least that's providing structure and organization, that's making things happen that they wish to happen, that's laying the groundwork for the changes that they hope to see. Um, it's hard to say, you know, the depth of his conviction, uh, in part because I don't know if he has many deep convictions or deep thoughts, but uh, his actions and his rhetoric certainly suggest that I would place him within that camp as a white nationalist. Yeah, thanks, Kyle. I mean, I, I guess also it's sort of at some question, at some point, we don't know what his motivations are. Um, maybe he doesn't even know what his motivations are, right. but it doesn't even necessarily matter. Um, right. You know, what matters is what he does, really, than what's, what's driving him. And he's, he's been appealing to these uh, folks from the get-go. I mean, don't forget the, the thing that got him uh, going in the Republican Party was spreading the conspiracy theory that Barack Obama was not born in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's a racist uh, conspiracy theory. Uh, I'm going to take a couple more questions about Trump, and I'm going to answer them myself, if you don't mind. Uh, one is a, a question about, um, I suppose, class and Trump's appeal to uh, disadvantaged uh, Americans. And I'm not going to ask whether Trump is going to win or not. I've, I think all of us should be out of the prediction business after 2016. Um, Yeah, so let me take this uh, question about, um, oh, there's one question about Trump's appeal uh, class, and there's another question uh, uh, from Michael Lawrence about 
What should we do? Can we still rely on democratic procedures to protect racial minorities from white nationalists getting back into power? So what, what's the answer? Um, and uh, I think the, these, I'm gonna put these two questions together for this reason, because I think that we do need to think in some ways about the way in which Trump and others have uh, appealed to disaffected uh, whites, that they provided them with a language, you know, uh, those who, you know, to try to explain uh, why they might be struggling for reasons uh, of uh, deindustrialization, you know, growing economic inequalities uh, and the like, and white nationalists have an easy answer uh, for that. And, and to be honest, uh, centrist politicians uh, have not had an answer for that. Uh, and this is part of why you see the decline of the, the center left, which is often losing votes indeed to the, the populist right. Um, you know, so I think, you know, people need to think about how to appeal to these voters. On the other hand, uh, I'm going to say very much that we should use democratic uh, procedures uh, to fight against uh, white nationalism to form majority. I mean, white nationalists are populist, uh, yeah, but they're not Democrats. I mean, you know, they, they're not into, uh, you know, uh, I mean, the history of white supremacy is of white majoritarian rule. I mean, in the United States uh, and also in, in the UK uh, and elsewhere, I mean, these are minoritarian movements that are willing to use uh, to exploit things like in the US Electoral College, the Supreme Court, um, and various other things. I mean, they're not truly democratic. So I, I think a democratic movement is, uh, you know, they can appeal to people on the basis of anti-racism, but also on the basis of uh, class uh, is, is really the, the response that, that I would suggest, not that I have all the answers. Um, very good questions for Kyle now. Uh, Susan Byrne wants to know, you spoke about men. She wants to know where are the women? What role do they play? Uh, are they in traditional support roles? Uh, and there was a similarly a question about masculinity uh, in um, movements that, that, uh, that you study in white nationalist movements. So where are the women and, and uh, what, what sense of masculinity do the, do the men in these movements have? Yeah, that's a terrific question. Um, in terms of the women, it depends, I think, who we're talking about, but the, the groups that I was writing about in this chapter and um, that I was kind of talking about here today, um, violent organizations, women have key roles to play in there in both terms of support, brokering group alliances between people is something that Kathleen Ballou has talked a lot in her work about the U.S. white power movement, um, but also they play functions, uh, structuring the organization, providing connections between members. Some have played important roles in actually building towards campaigns of violence, whether that's carrying weapons or money or helping orchestrate acts or even participating in acts. Um, so they do, they play that role on the one hand. At the same time, within much of the movement, there's a strong symbolic role for women, which in many ways negates that actual work that they do, which is to place them as, uh, guardians or stewards of the white nation whose main job it is to reproduce the nation through childbirth and also to rear um, proper young white men to carry on this kind of work in the future to make the revolution that they they so imagine um, that's speaking in a very broad sense and i think depending on which groups you're talking about um, women figure in different ways but uh, Many are involved within violence and planning violence. I think here of the National Socialist Underground, the, the cell of three Germans that committed a string of murders in the 1990s and in the early 2000s. Uh, it's two men and one woman, um, all of whom participated relatively equally in planning and carrying out uh, those terrorist attacks. Uh, what was the, the second question, Dan? 
uh, about masculinity? Um, yeah, so I think much of how we understand the violence that uh, is both fantasized and perhaps more often fantasized and acted upon by the far right is by trying to wrap our heads around the gender dimensions of how the movement and the men within the movement see themselves. When they look upon mainstream conservatives, let alone when they look upon liberals, they see weakness. Uh, they see effeminacy and where they're inclined to contrast themselves as being hard men, men that can get things done, men that can reclaim the state. And the best way to do that is through violent action. Uh, this is kind of a running discourse for how they see themselves, how they see their enemies. Um, it explains terms like cuckservative, which is, you know, obviously is an epithet directed towards uh, other conservatives who aren't hard enough, who have, you know, in the sense been uh, lost their wives or partners, right, to some other man who was stronger. Right? This is a, a, a popular framing for how many on the far right see themselves. And yeah, I think it extends into most realms of their culture. And also it, it makes the case that what real men do is to carry out violence or at least to intimidate violence or to fantasize about it. And I think more often it's what, what we're talking about is fantasy rather than actual violence, but the fantasies themselves end up stoking real world violence. Um, a masculinity figures in other ways, if you look at skinhead music and culture, again, the idea is stressing hardness, it's stressing maleness, stressing camaraderie, um, often kind of an anti-authoritarian, often working class image figures heavily in these songs and the motifs of the lyrics. Um, all of these suggest that, you know, masculinity is central to how they see themselves and what they want to accomplish. Thanks very much. This is uh, for you, Bill. Um, the question is, how can we square the fact that people like Pretty Patel, who are responsible for furthering white supremacist anti-migrant rhetoric, are themselves not white. Uh, and there's another similar question about the fact that there are, you know, a number of African Americans, small in percentage terms, but you know, a number, a far greater number of Hispanic Americans, by the way, who uh, support Trump. How, how are we to explain this, Bill? Well, I'm very pleased that um, we have Pretty Patel raised as a problem tonight. <laughs> it wouldn't have been the same if Priti Patel hadn't been here. I, I'm going to talk about Priti Patel and not about Trump, because the minute you ask that question, you know, how can she do this when she herself is not white? How can she subscribe to all these things? And it is a really serious question, and it does, kind of, it does befuddle the mind to some extent. Um, and my answer is kind of a little bit technical in a way, but she, the, the thing about Pretty, Pretty Patel is how she operates as if race doesn't exist. That's how she chooses actually to live race, that race doesn't exist. So politics is not, um, is not concerned with, it's not driven by any racial investments. Um, and if she was responsible for sending all the, the Windrush, Windrush generation back to lands they didn't know, well, as she imagined that, when she, when she it was finally tumbled and she realized what was happening with her as a public scandal, as she imagined it, all that had nothing to do with race in her mind. It had nothing to do with race at all. And she explained it by an administrative malfunction. She said, the people in the Home Office are good people. They aren't racist, they're good people. There was just this glitch in the algorithm which sent 
the wrong people back. It so happened that the people they sent back were all non-white, all black or brown West Indians, you know? Um, and I think the, the, the difficulty here is that she has a conception of, a, and this is a difference between Britain and the United States, Pretty Patel is working with a conception of race where race is bad. And I still think that exists formally within British politics, despite Johnson. But what they all buy into and they become militant for is believing in the concept of racialization. So even though um, race doesn't exist, well, they can and they do racialize people who they regard as outsiders. And they spend their whole time racializing that. But in the same breath, they deny that they're doing that. So it's a very delicate, complicated um, subterfuge, which they're engaged with. And with Pretty Patel, it's really, it is staggering how, you know, the degree of dissociation which goes on in, in her own mind. Um, that she can talk about, and she has talked about this during the Windrush scandal, she talks about the way um, in which she herself has suffered racism and racism is bad, you know? But then here she is racializing the whole of the Windrush generation, yeah? It is logically incompatible, but it is livable. And that's why, and that's how I try and explain it in terms of the distinction between racialization, where race appears not to exist, but things are in fact racialized, social relations, and people are racialized, and race which she regards as old-fashioned and bad. It's a complicated argument, but it's something along those lines, I think. Maybe someone else can put it more clearly. Yeah, thanks very much, uh, Bill. I mean, the it's obviously very convenient as well to, to have certain non-white supporters of uh, you know, of these groups that they can, you know, when they give them a plausible deniability, I suppose, uh, when they when they choose to, to do so. Um, question here about religion, uh, religion and especially evangelicalism and white nationalism. If you don't mind, I'll, I'll take this one because my chapter of the book actually is about uh, Ian Paisley, the uh, Belfast uh, minister, um, the unionist, the, the anti-Catholic, um, the one who insisted that Northern Ireland was a, you know, Protestant nation for Protestants. And it turns out Paisley had, you know, very deep connections with American uh, white uh, supremacists who, you know, through evangelical uh, networks. Um, and I think there are certain elective affinities between, say, the idea of, uh, of a chosen people, the sense of aggrievement uh, against um, liberal Protestants, against the, you know, World Council of Churches, who are sort of driving a kind of a, a certain kind of liberal anti-racist uh, agenda during this period. So those links are there. I mean, this is the history that at least in the US, you know, and I suppose the two with, with these, these connections that Paisley had, you know, evangelicals want to cover up today, but, but it's there. And I think is, it's one way that you can, you know, explain in, in the American context how these evangelicals can support someone like Trump who's so clearly um, amoral and uh, irreligious. Um, okay, let me just see what else we have in terms of uh, questions. There are so many wonderful questions. Um, and uh, Zoe, if you don't mind, I'm going to uh, put this one um, to you, which is asking about 
um, what can we do to restrain the phenomenon that we've described uh, this evening? Um, you know, do you have any thoughts about, you know, what we could be doing as scholars or as citizens to, you know, to try to, to, to fight against the, uh, the far right, the racist right? Well, it's a great question. Um, look, it partly comes back down to what you were saying at the beginning uh, in seeing this book as an act of allyship um, in some ways. Uh, and I think it also comes back to this kind of trickier question, which I think Kyle answered so sort of articulately on whether Trump is a white supremacist. Um, and I think in terms of sort of restraining uh, or trying to kind of wind back this phenomenon, what one thing that you can do is just speak out at any given moment. So whether or not Trump, you know, really understands any of this ideology, especially the kind of historical roots, as, as Kyle said, I think is doubtful. But if at any time you choose not to unequivocally condemn um, racism or, or any kind of um, hatred or discrimination, then you are kind of capitulating, you are complacent in that. So I think one thing is to be able to kind of call out um, this kind of behaviour whenever you can. And also to think about how this kind of or how scholarship like this can actually reach a wider audience. So uh, I suppose one of the sort of questions that we often come up with is, you know, are we just preaching to the choir in terms of the kind of people who are interested in a topic like this or the kind of people that come to listen to this kind of book launch? So in terms of how these kind of ideas are disseminated more widely. Um, I think, look, a great example for the rest of the audience, if they haven't read it, is uh, Dan's great piece in the Irish Times um, that we read a couple of days ago um, that, that really draws out the kind of, I suppose, the kind of the prevalence um, and the kind of the porous nature of this white supremacy and the way it is moving quite freely um, at the moment, especially when we've got this kind of cry of fake news, which also is not new. Um, this was used in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s by US segregationists and by uh, apartheid ideologues in Southern Africa to say there's a press iron curtain and uh, we can't escape from this press iron curtain. So they're saying all this stuff about us and it isn't true. Um, but you know, it's, it's not a complete answer. I think we just need to keep trying to do everything um, that we can. And well, we'll, we'll see. Well, I'm interested to see what happens next month with the election. Uh, thanks, Zoe. Thanks very much. We have a, a comment uh, here that if, uh, apparently two of the most active white nationalists in Ireland are women, uh, one, of who, one of whom is here tonight and has, uh, we have a question as well about uh, whether it's natural uh, for any ethnic majority in society to wish to remain so uh, saying if they 
seek to do so by democratic opposition to immigration, there should be no problem. And, and what is our response uh, to that? Um, I mean, I think that's uh, the, the way that I would respond to that is to say that whiteness isn't, an, you know, an eth really an ethnic identity. It's kind of a, you know, a, it's not doesn't have any biological um, basis either. Um, and it's, uh, it's in a sense, a, an imagined, you know, identity uh, that is produced. Uh, and you can see this clearly in how different it is defined, you know, in, uh, in different ways. So, you know, like in the US, you know, you have Trump, uh, who's promoting white nationalism, uh, but Eastern Europeans, you know, uh, or descendants of Eastern Europeans can be very much a part of uh, his form of white nationalism, whereas in Britain, you know, it's the Eastern Europeans are trying to keep out by, uh, by leaving the EU in, uh, in many cases. Um, you know, we had a, a sort of a fascinating uh, discussion in the book in Rhodesia, you know, what was, or what was being proposed was pretty clearly, clearly white minority rule. Uh, and eventually they defined a, a variety of non-whites as, you know, as an effect, you know, whites or acceptable as whites because they needed more white people to maintain their regime. So who gets defined as white really changes. Uh, it's a historical question. It changes based on time and place. Uh, it is not by no means a, a natural uh, identity. Uh, it's very much a constructed one historically, uh, politically. Um, so that would be, I guess, my own response to that, uh, to that question. Um, we are sort of coming to the end here, so I'm just going to see if our panelists want to offer any, uh, any final thoughts. And I do apologize if we didn't get to your questions because there were so many wonderful questions uh, there. We didn't have time to, uh, for all of them, but we appreciate uh, all of them very much. Uh, but I'll just see if, um, if you guys just have any, any closing thoughts. So, uh, uh, Bill, do you have anything to, uh, to add here? To, to I do, just quickly. I'll try and be very, very quick, which it comes back to the, <laughs> to the question, what on earth do we do in this situation? Um, and it seems to me that, and I have to, I have to confess, it is, you know, I arrive at this partly looking back to the period of classic fascism. But what is necessary is to create the broadest popular front against Trump or, um, or Johnson. Because I don't believe, I really don't believe that in the United Kingdom that, that, all, that all of the Conservative Party is racist or agrees with Johnson on race. I certainly don't believe that the so-called Red Wall voters are all mobilized by a kind of primitive racism. Um, and I think it is, it is the job, our job, to prize open that alliance which has come together where you know, the Conservative Party was at its wit's end. Johnson comes, he can provide, he can provide the votes, he can you know, get electoral victory and so on. And you know, the Conservative Party were craven in, in capitulating, just as the Republicans are craven in capitulating Trump. But it's a very shaky alliance. And I think the more that we can begin to find the means of building coalitions, popular coalitions, against a hard racism, and just see if we can break that alliance between the established Conservative parties, in Britain the Conservative Party in the United States, the Republicans, and the image of Trump and the populists. 
because it seems to me that that is not that is not eternal. It's not. Um, it's vulnerable, and that's where we should be going. Kyle, any final thoughts? Yeah, if I may build on um, both what Zoe and Bill had said there. I mean, I think you're right. Education and empathy are important here, but as Bill is describing, the broadest possible coalition, the Popular Front, um, against white nationalism or, you know, in some ways, quasi-fascism, I think is key. And, and one way as well, I think, to, to deal with that is by, to the extent you can place that coalition into power, into political power uh, through the democratic process, is to deal and to root out the politics of resentment through structural economic change. That if, if we are gonna in part explain the rise of white nationalism by pointing to people who gravitate towards the movement or vote for um, people like Trump, as, as doing so because they feel aggrieved, they feel, feel that they're losing something in the nation, and their wages are stagnating, communities that they're coming from are declining. Um, I see in my own area here in upstate New York. Structural economic change is one way to deal with that, right, which um, obviously requires an electoral majority in the United States. It means that we have to gain the Senate as well, as in addition to the presidency. But if you can begin doing that, then you can maybe begin scaling back the movement. Um, but there's no band-aid and there's no overnight remedy. This will take time. And uh, there's so many uncertainties about it. I go through the permutations of a, a Biden victory versus a Trump victory and which one in fact does more to galvanize white nationalism. And I can make the case that both would do that. And so it, it remains to be seen what comes out of that. Um, but really, yeah, it's, it's, we need to reclaim political power as well. Uh, part of the way to do that is uh, is to focus on both shared issues of class across racial lines um, and also to, to reframe people's vision of the nation to the extent where they can reckon the circumstances and the shared concerns they have with other people outside the nation, both, uh, I think, you know, metaphorically or rhetorically, but also physically outside the borders of the United States or outside of Britain. Um, so that's a shift in consciousness. How you engineer that, <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a different thing as well, but something along those lines. Zoe, any final thoughts? Yeah, I think, um, you know, Bill and Kyle have covered a lot. And I think one thing just to kind of reaffirm is that, yes, we need to think about kind of education and empathy, but also to, I think, remember that these racists are not racist necessarily because they're uneducated. Um, some are incredibly uh, intelligent, well-educated, um, and they know, they're very savvy in, in how they organize and sort of develop and sustain um, momentum. Um, so I think sort of, yeah, firstly, there's only so much, you know, you can do from the, the sort of position of academia. And I think secondly, to sort of think about the vocabulary that we use. Now I know that Dan, you and um, I think it was Camilla in, these, in, our, in, in your opening comments spoke about the discussions about what to call the book and whether white nationalism um, was appropriate. And, you know, I think we came to a, a kind of consensus that, that it was suitable, um, but it's close to racial nationalism. I put that in quotes, um, which is the preferred term of these people who are racists. They're white supremacists, um, they're xenophobes and they're anti-Semites. Uh, and I think uh, it's important to 
use those terms and um, speak about some of these people and their organizations accurately um, and perhaps some of that kind of shock factor uh, can help to bring some of this into sharper view. Thanks very much. I mean, I think that's one of the things we wanted to do with the book was to really take this phenomenon seriously, um, to not dismiss it, to not assume that uh, white supremacists are ignorant, that they're anachronistic, that they're going to fade away, but to, to understand, you know, what's produced them in order to, to combat it. And, and unfortunately, we're, we're reminded almost daily of the, of the need to, to do so. So thank you very much to, to all the speakers today. Thank you all for, for coming. I'm going to turn it over to Eve now uh, for the, uh, the final word. Thank you very much, Dan. And this has been an absolutely compelling discussion. I can see that there are many questions that came in from the audience and, and you've also got a number of responses to the topic uh, on Twitter, coming through on Twitter. So there's obviously a, a real energy uh, that, that people have to tackle this very difficult subject. And I welcome that everybody on the panel has been so resourceful in addressing these very dark elements in a current political landscape. Uh, let me close simply by congratulating Dan Geary and his co-editors uh, and all the contributors to Global White Nationalism, this very timely book from Manchester University Press. And thank you for the conversation you shared with us this evening. Uh, thanks also to the Hub team, uh, Francesca Urafati and Aoife King in particular. And thanks to everyone who's listened in. Thank you for your questions and your participation. Please keep an eye on the Trinity Long Room Hub website because you'll see a number of forthcoming events. And I think of particular interest to this audience is our next Behind the Headlines event. That's going to be on the 29th of October, seven o'clock in the evening. And we're going to be asking the question, is this still an American dream? Um, and obviously that's uh, in advance of the US election uh, in uh, early November. So registration will be open on that very soon. And I look forward to seeing many of you again then. Uh, for now, from the Trinity Long Room Hub online, I wish you all a very good night. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.